But when you're writing, you might work on a project for a year and get to the end of that project, and then it's not finished. You've got to work on it again. Times best-selling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. All right, Taylor, we have a, an unusual show today, and this is you're going to be talking. This is going to be you and someone else talking on a podcast that you recorded with John Pollock, who is a tax strategist. And you and I talked to him on the Author Biz a few weeks ago. He's a fascinating guy, really interesting, and you've known him for a long time. So that's going to be the show today. But before we get to that, before we started recording, you were talking about your email list and some and an email that you had just sent out and told a quick funny story that just cracked me up. Okay. So um for those of you who are on my email list, there are basically two types of emails that go out. There are the newsletters, which whenever I send them, that's it. Whoever is on my list at that time gets them and they're gone. And then there are um, emails that go out on a clock. So because they're usually full of like writing advice and I put a lot of effort and energy into writing those emails. And so it just seems a waste if you know someone gets on the list two years later, and they just miss all of that. So I just put them on a clock. So people get those emails at different times based on how long they've been on my email list. So the other day I was going through, I have this email account that I use for like, it's a throwaway email account, whatever. Um, I use it for online stuff, but I, I can't just go in and delete all the emails out of there without checking to make sure that something's important. You know, I didn't miss something important. And so I go in there and it's just like, it's been a while. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is such a time suck. And I start thinking about it. Like it just keeps going and going. How many emails are in there? Emails I didn't ask for. Emails <laughs> that I don't know how I got on this list and I've got to take the time to unsubscribe. And it's just like, how many people in their day-to-day -day life are going through the exact same thing as me? This waste of collective life. And I thought Me. of all my, <laughs> right, probably most of us. And I thought of my email subscribers and how, depending on which email addresses they gave me when they signed up, I could be, my emails to them could be ending up in exactly those, a list of all this just blah, right? And I got to feeling very thankful that, that I've been allowed into people's inboxes in spite of this deluge that comes at us every day people trusted me with their email addresses many of them i have very high open rate open and take the time to read what i wrote so i wrote an email about it thanking my uh email subscribers for letting me into their inbox and telling them basically what i just told you and how i do value the time and and i because of that, I try and make the emails value a value for the time. And so I, I sent that off. Now, if you're on my email list and you didn't get that, wait a year or two. It'll show up eventually. <laughs> 
But the point of this story that made me laugh is after putting this heartfelt thank you into print and sending it off, people unsubscribed. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know why. I thought that was the funniest thing, (laughs) the funniest thing on planet Earth. And so I was telling Steve about it, and he got a good laugh out of it. So we decided that we would share it with you, too. And if you're an author out there and you have an email list, then you know exactly what she's talking about. You write these emails, and you you pour your heart into them, and you send them out, and it takes like 37 seconds to get that first unsubscribe. And when it first happens, it's like, oh, no! (laughs) And then after a while, you just laugh. It's long enough now that I'm like, okay, well, that's good. They can go... You know, I don't want to be garbage in somebody else, in somebody's email. And if they're not finding value in it enough to click on them and open them, then it's better that they unsubscribe because then we're all happier. And I pay for it. You know, it's not free. It's not a free service. So I would rather somebody unsubscribe and be free of that extra time burden in their inbox. And then they can free me of the obligation to pay for the time burden. So, you know, it's it's a win-win all around. I don't take it as a negative thing. I I do sometimes wonder what I could do differently to provide value, because that's my my end goal. But I don't take it personally. All right, Taylor, tell the listeners why they should keep listening. What are, okay. you, what are you and John talking about today? All right, so this, is, this show is probably going to run a little long because um, John's show is longer. <laughs> and he, he uh, operates a company called Financial Gravity, which is – it's – tax consulting, but it also is all levels of financial management. And I I found him originally because I had no money, but I knew the informationist had gone on to be a bestseller and I would eventually be getting money. And after having been broke for my whole life, I didn't want to just have to give it all away in taxes all of a sudden. So I, um, I was looking for somebody who could look at my particular situation and say, Based on your particulars, your income, your household, blah, 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 this is what you should do to minimize your taxes. And I couldn't find anybody like that. It's all just like CPAs, lawyers, whatever. And then I found John. And I contacted him, and he was like, if you're not making over XYZ amount of money, then, you know, it's not really worth your time. But come back when you're, you know, making this much. And I was like, okay, fine. And then a year later, I finally started getting some paychecks. And so I came and found him. And we've kind of been friends ever since because he's a talker and I'm a talker and we both geek out over tax stuff. And um, we just, you know, we've just been friends. So he has a podcast and he's like, I can't believe that after all this time, I've never had you as a guest on my podcast. And his podcast is really for businesses and entrepreneurs and stuff. But what I do as a writer, it it is business. Um, and so he's like, I really need to have you on. So we did a show and it was a lot of fun. And the full unedited version is up on my Patreon account. But I wanted to give um, as much as we could in this show here just for fun. So you guys could because it's, it's different. It's not the same stuff that Steve and I talk about all the time. So, um, yeah, that's what the rest of this show is going to be, is my interview, with his interview with me, my interview with him, however it goes. And then next week, we are back, I think, into a uh, Hack the Craft style show where you're, you're doing some more editing work. And that's sort of why we're doing this show right now, because you are, as, as you're listening to this, Taylor is heads down working on the editing shows that you'll be hearing next week. Yeah, because it takes a lot of time to do those, and um, I'm still a little bit backed up from the new year. So I haven't had a chance to get to them, but I'm hoping 
that next show will be that because I'll have had a chance between this recording and then to, to get that done. All right. With that as an intro, here's John and Taylor. So I have a good friend on the line. Her name is Taylor Stevens, and she's unique in the fact that most people that we have on the line are trying to start and and conquer the world with their business or solving a major problem. But one of the reasons I, I wanted to have Taylor on is that she has a business that people don't think of as a business. I mean, if, if I was an, an artist that sang you know, songs, you wouldn't think of me as a business owner, but I would be. Taylor's an author, and she's a best-selling author, which we'll talk about. There's, there's, there's some, <laughs> some problems with the word best-selling author, but we'll deal with that. But with that introduction she's she's brilliant she's got an unbelievably cool story and i wanted to have her on because i think she can teach us all a little bit about a a business that's being substantially disrupted which is the book business um so with that kind of introduction taylor welcome to the show thank you so much that was like wow can you be my spokesperson john (laughs) well you're i mean so she's i mean you're fascinating so let's talk a little bit about the best-selling author thing so i want you to deconstruct that because i actually have a friend who we've had on the show his name is nick nanton that makes best-selling authors i mean he literally manufactures best-selling authors and what's interesting about that is that uh he can make him a best-selling author by by picking a category on amazon and and winning that 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 category for the day and you won for one day therefore he can say this but yes. you're not that kind of best-selling author you're a real and i'm using air quotes real best-selling <laughs> author so explain the difference between kind of gaming the system and actually succeeding in it well i think i don't think there's any system that can't be gamed right. ultimately That's but um it it's the best-selling terminology started off when long before we went digital. And so it was newspapers generally and and different um, businesses or guardians at the gate, so to speak, that would decide, you know, their lists. And the most prestigious of them all still to this day is the New York Times list. And so um, you have so many categories of best-selling authors. You've got the New, the New York Times best-selling author, the USA Today best-selling author. You have international best-selling authors, and of course, there's Amazon. And each of these platforms have multiple categories in which someone can be a best-selling author. For example, with the New York Times, you might have fiction, nonfiction. Uh, it used to be trade paperback and hardback, and now there's digital, then there's some of those combined. So there's multiple lists for each platform. And Amazon, of course, is the granddaddy of them all that has hundreds and hundreds of potential categories that you could be a bestseller in. You're number one in a subcategory of a subcategory of a subcategory, or you could be a number one overall bestselling author. So anyone who's, because there's so many types of bestselling authors in this sort of a prestige that comes with putting bestseller after your name, if someone is, for example, a New York Times bestselling author, that's going to be in there big and bold. Someone might even put themselves as a USA Today bestselling author. But generally speaking, most of the other lists just tend to say, I'm a bestselling author without actually saying where they were a bestselling author at, because there are so many different, um, many different ways of saying that and not all of them have the same uh, weight to them so i 
I set a goal to be a New York Times bestselling author. What do I have to do to make that list? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends a lot on who you are. Um, Okay, so one of the biggest myths about um, those lists, especially, well, no one knows the exact formula that's used as proprietary. It's like Google. Yeah, but um, there's a lot of understanding of it, which is why I say all systems can be gamed. And the the New York Times bestselling list is, um, it's not based off of volume. That's something that a lot of people don't understand. It's, it's based off, it's relative, it's speed. So if, if you happen to have your book published on a slow week, then, you know, it might only take a couple thousand hard copies to get yourself on the list. Um, you know, at what point on the list, I don't know. But if you happen to come out, have your book come out in the same week that, you know, you've got Fifty Shades of Something and Harry Potter, whatever, and on and on big books coming out at the same time, then you might sell twice as many books as you normally would have and still not even make the list because it's relative compared to what what else is being sold at that same time. And there's calculations that are done to try and keep people from gaming the system. So if someone were to uh, go into a bookstore. And I have to say, not all sales count towards these lists. Um, only specific venues are counted. It's like um, they're polling uh, for averages, I guess you could say. So Barnes & Noble, for example, might report to the Times. Amazon might report to the Times. but And, and a lot of independent stores report to the Times. But if you sold 100,000 books at a speaking engagement, none of those would count. Sales to libraries. Libraries buy a lot of books. Those don't count. So if if you were to, for example, walk into a Barnes & Noble and buy 100 copies of your own book, hoping that 100 copies will be put towards the list, they won't. That'll just count as a single sale. So let's stop there. That's also true to Amazon. So if I buy 10 books on Amazon, it's one book. Exactly. And this is to get a sense of the velocity and to keep people from gaming the system. But there have been industries that have sprung up on the side that set up with like thousands of accounts and with different credit cards and and whatever. And they will go in and buy and pre-order and do all of this. And there have been individuals boosted to the Times list using those methods, those companies that do it. And generally those are it's expensive. It's very expensive to do that. You're basically buying your way onto the list. And the people who do that are those that writing is not their actual business. It's not, they don't make their money from writing. They make their writing, their money from like selling speaking engagements or selling a product or um, something else. And so being on the New York, being a New York Times bestseller is like a, a gold star by their name that convinces people that they have value. So they're willing to spend all that money to game the system because they're going to make it back somewhere else, not through selling books. It's a good way to go broke if you're trying to actually make a living writing. Which is, which is interesting because you just explained a whole kind of universe of things that nobody even knows exists. They think, well, gosh, if that guy got a thousand books in that convention, He's got a thousand books now. Like you said, there are companies that will go out there and buy the thousand books individually, and then package them and send them to the convention so they get the credit. But you're paying for that, and at some point, you're 
you're you're spending money to lose money. But if you're yeah, getting- it'll take hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy your way onto the list if that's what you you want to do. But and and they're wise to it too. And they, they if it gets some um, found out and it off it if if you're competing in a genre where fans are very rabid about the authors that they love and they've never heard of your book, people are going to go sleuthing. It's happened. And they will make a big deal about it and the times will yank it off the list and you'll lose that status. So um, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. It's cutthroat and it's all for what, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All for what, but with all that preamble, you are a bestseller. So I am. Talk, I'm so New talk York a Times little best- bit about the bestseller uh, books that you have, a little bit about the characters and, and where they came from and, and kind of a little bit of that journey. Well, um, I, the, the character books that I write are thrillers. They're boots on the ground, international thrillers. Uh, and I, I have one series now that's out and the second that'll be coming, um, in 2019, the, the series that's currently published features a mercenary information hunter, sort of in the, the vein of Jason Bourne, James Bond, but a little grittier. And um, they've, you know, the the books have been optioned by James Cameron, but fingers crossed, who knows if he'll ever get around to making them because we're still in the production process for Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5. Yeah, 5, 6, 12. Uh, yeah, nothing's going to happen until those movies are finished. And so, yeah, that's what I do. I write gritty, edge of the seat. I call them character study, high-octane character studies because... In, in this genre, which is heavily male-dominated, I, I don't know very many women who write what I write. And I'm, my writing is often confused as being written by a male, which I, I will just, I'll take it. I'll, okay, you know. Yeah, you'll um, take it as a compliment or an insult. You're not sure what it yeah, is, right? I just, you know, it means that there's nothing, I'm just writing people. Right. I, I write characters. And in, in this genre, thrillers, the uh, stories tend to be very plot heavy and the writing can also sometimes be rather clunky. Um, The focus is just on getting that story out. And I write slower than most because I focus on the characters and the writing is a little more literary than I'm not a literary writer by any means, but a little more literary than the average thriller. Um, So it's for people who really like to think, who like to travel from their armchairs or who have traveled a lot and who, you know, want to re-experience it or whatever, them, those, that's the type of books that I write. Yeah, and, they're, and I'll, I'll vouch for them. They're good and they're very good. Uh, I remember when I met Taylor, I don't read a lot of fiction because I'm, I'm a business guy and I just read, I, I'm a, I have a, an unbelievable appetite for books and I just haven't read a lot of fiction and... And I, but when I met Taylor, I was like, well, I like you. I'll read them because, you know, you're nice. And <laughs> it was a, it was a pity read. It really was. It was a, I'm, I'll read it because uh, we're friends. Like, I guess I feel like I have to. And then I was like, I came back to her. I was like, wow, these are really good. It's like, well, thanks. I, you know, that means you thought they weren't really good, but they're really, really good. Um, my, my favorite still is the doll because I think that one's from a character standpoint. I think that might be the, uh, the deepest. I don't even know. You know, here's another thing. This, this is a, here's a question. This is an aside. The first two, I do a lot of stuff on audible. So the first two I listened to, but the doll I actually read and I'm wondering if I liked it the best because I read it 
and the theater of the mind was is, is very powerful um, versus you know listening to it. So I'm I'm not sure if that's a thing, but well, I just love it. Actually, it, it all. is a thing. Um, it's it's an interesting from from me as the author. It's it's a very fascinating experienced audio readers. Audio is actually one of the fastest growing segments of book publishing right now. And when when you are the author, uh, the only thing when you're when you're in the publishing industry, the only thing you as the author really have full control over are the words on the page. You a lot of, there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, that the authors somehow have something to do with the cover or even the marketing, like how they describe the characters on the book jacket. I get a lot of flack from uh, way back when, not anymore, because this book launched sort of right at the heels of the Millennium series, Lisbeth Salander mania. Mm, yeah. My publisher compared this character to Lisbeth Salander and people who, and she's not like Lisbeth Salander. No, there she's are, not. There are aspects about her. I'd never read the that series. Well, she's a woman, she's so that's a, one. She's a woman. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. she rides a motorcycle. She gets information. She's not a hacker. She's boots on the ground information hunter. But a lot of people are like, oh, the author's trying to compare this her character to Elizabeth Salander. No, the author didn't have anything. The author didn't even hardly know who Elizabeth Salander was. Yeah. So It's well before that all was of, kind of a thing. Yeah, right. So all of that, um, the author really only has control of the words on the page. Everything else is somebody else has the final say so. And so when you're when you're sitting back and you're watching this all happen, every reader is going to respond to your work differently. It's no two readers have the same experience and it's a shared experience. The author's mind, the reader's mind and shared history. Everybody brings their own biases to the page. But when it's just you and the reader that's sort of a, an intimate relationship, and you can, there's a give and take. You can understand why they, you know, did like or didn't like or whatever based on your words, what you are communicating. But when there's an, a narrator, now there's a third person in there. And so if the listener doesn't like the narrator, they by default don't like the author. If the if the listener, if the narrator reads a little too slow, if they don't have the right accents, if there's something about the style of narration that the listener is just not keyed into, what would otherwise maybe, and I'm not saying for sure, maybe be a book that would be up their alley, they will hate it. And the reverse, you do sometimes hear the reverse as well, where I wouldn't have liked this book except I like this narrator and she brought it to life type thing. Mm-hmm. So the the audio experience is completely different in the sense that it's no longer just the author and the reader connecting there's an intermediary that it has to go through and that sort of changes everything so that i mean that may be the reason why i like the doll the best because i didn't have that and if you and then take this into account i listen at higher than 1x right so now i'm i'm speed reading so to speak uh, someone else is speed reading, so I'm, I'm basically being read to by a chipmunk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so no matter how cool the yeah. accent is, is I've ruined it by speeding right. up. But the story, even at that, the stories were compelling to me. So, and there's still a theater of the mind because you're you you paint, and and, and as an author of fiction, which is something I don't I don't usually get from a, a nonfiction book, is you're painting with words. You are describing 
the the mood and the 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 climate of the the place uh, Monroe is in. Uh, uh, so it's you're just you have to describe that, and you have to describe the almost kind of the intentions of the bad guys and the. Yes, you you crawl really deeply into the characters' minds. And it's funny you should mention that, use the words paint and and artist. I I do a lot of teaching as well. Um, I I come from a non-writing background, and of course we can get into that as well. But I have a very limited education. I taught myself everything I know. And so I had to basically hack hack creative writing. I've never taken a creative writing course. Um, I I just started. And... In, in, in hacking it, in, I've had to find um, language, ways to describe what it is I'm doing that is completely different than how maybe a writing teacher would teach it. And what you just explained about painting the pictures is that that is what really good fiction is, is you are using the words necessary to allow the reader to create their own mental movie. Because reading is... The, the reading mind is basically existing in a blank space, like out in space without the stars. And as you put the words onto the page, that's all they have to make that picture. They can't see what the author sees. They can't hear what the author hears. And so the most vivid, immersive book experiences are those in which the author crafts the story without forgetting that the reader can't see what they see. And so you give the reader reading mind the tools to make their own movies and it it comes alive in a way that you feel that you're actually present there in in that story. And so I just thought that your analogy was I was like, oh my God, he gets it and he doesn't even write for a living. No, I totally get it because I, I read for a living. I mean I do a lot of reading and I am a you know I'm a fan of movies because they're faster. <laughs> But I, but I also know if you've ever read a book and then gone to a movie, it could be kind of cognitive dissonance because the the interpretation of the picture in the mind versus what's on the screen, yeah, they're two, they're two different people. Um, and you know, you're taking a, a book that can be unbelievably complex, and a movie is a completely different medium. And, and it, it is, has, and it has to be zipped up. So I mean, you can't do a whole book. I think that the the they're calling it the golden age of television because the, the television is starting to be able to to really fully realize book like uh, scenarios because they're able to yeah get longer. they can stretch it out yeah exactly yeah I think I think your books would be great for a uh, a Netflix series we gotta get, keep our fingers crossed <laughs> yeah no I think they'd be great because they're they're complex enough you've got punctuations of action which is kind of what you need for a long uh, you know, like a, an eight to ten series, uh, but I, I, they're they're very fascinating, and they and they are Jason Bourne ish. They're kind of Elizabeth Sanderish, uh, whatever her name is, uh, ish. Um, and but they're interesting because I like the information, the boots on the ground stuff. She's not on a computer looking for stuff. She has to drive somewhere um, and and extract information. Uh, she's not walking into the county <laughs> county seat and saying, hey, I need this thing on Microfish, uh, she's extracting information from people that are close to that. It's very, it's just a great, it's, there's really, I don't know if there's anything else like it, because I'm not an avid reader, but it's, 
they're great. They're really great books. So I highly encourage. So the first one's called The Informationist. So obviously you'd want to start with the first, especially if you're going to read the first, the first and the second because there's some things that tie those together. Um, but my, still, the doll's still my favorite. <laughs> so, <laughs> one day. Yeah, so one of the things I uh, like to have people talk about, so you, you kind of tease the idea that you're not educated uh, in your field. I'm not educated in my field, but there's enough stuff out there, and you have an analytical mind like mine where we really deconstruct things, so that, that's very helpful uh, because that helps with you educate yourself, and when you read somebody else's fiction, you can kind of see things that other people don't see. So talk a little bit about your background because it by itself uh, I mean, at some point, we got to get you famous so that we can get the book about your background. Uh, we <laughs> well, you sort s- of have a book about my background. Yeah, um, you do. So talk a little bit about that. All right. So um, I was born and raised in a religious cult. And it was born that came out of the whole Jesus revolution. It was international, nomadic. And I grew up in communes around the world. And a lot of times when you tell someone you grew up in a commune, of course, the first thing that that comes to mind is David Koresh in in Waco. And they're like, so when you moved around the world, the whole commune just picked up and moved somewhere. And it was like, no, they would establish communes all over the world. And when you moved, you moved from commune to commune. It was like, I think in its heyday, maybe 20,000 people or so. Um, But over the course of the movement, I think at least roughly 15, 20,000 children were born into that movement. And I'm probably one of the first 200 born into it. I'm one of the oldest. And so the, the, the cult didn't believe in education because in their mind, the world was ending any day. And what was the point? <laughs> yeah, of what's the point? Sending, Seems like yeah, a useless exercise. What was the, exactly. What was the point of, edu- you know, having these kids get educated when they were never going to use it anyway. And they were very anti-education in the sense that only, you know, it was all the devil's stuff that was being taught in schools. And so all we really needed was a basic grasp of reading, writing, and arithmetic. So anything beyond sixth grade was considered a waste of time. And I, I was a little bit lucky in that I actually sort of got a sixth grade education. Um, my, we lived in the United States uh, for off and on a chunk of time between what would have been first and sixth grade. And, you know, we have compulsory education laws here. So anytime we stayed somewhere long enough, I would get put in school. And so that's where my very sporadic sixth grade education came from. Uh, I have friends that are a little bit younger than me whose parents didn't um, or whose parents didn't uh, weren't in the United States for much time at all. And as a foreigner abroad, you can sort of get away from skirt the whole issue of compulsory education because you're a guest in that country who were lucky to get, you know, three grades of education. So we come from a very non educated background, but a lot of people tend to confuse education and intelligence. Yes. Just because you're not educated doesn't mean you're not capable of educating yourself. It's harder, much, much harder. Um, You're starting life from, you know, a hundred meters or a thousand meters behind the starting line compared to what just even your average person without a lot of 
help from their family might get starting out in life. I mean, so handicapped. But if, you know, and, and not everybody from my background has been able to succeed. Uh, for every success, there's been a disastrous failure, you know, drugs, alcohol, suicide, uh, mental disease, so, so much, because there was so much abuse. And some some people were able to, to get past that and use it to drive them, and others were destroyed by it. And I tell people that had I, you know, there's so much luck that comes along with the publishing industry. And even though I, it, you know, facilitated the luck by doing the hard work and doing everything that I was supposed to do, there are many people who maybe are better writers than me, better storytellers than me, who won't ever get published because there always is a factor of luck involved. And if I hadn't gotten lucky, would I be as well-adjusted? Would I be as uh, positive and, you know, challenged by life as I am? Because your circumstances you know, they can affect that too. And success has a way, of course, making the world seem like you can grab it by the tail. And so, you know, I, I have that that attitude of there, but for the grace of God, go. it could have gone either way for me in that sense. But I'm also not the most successful of people from my background. It's just that most don't talk about it. And I've never had a problem talking about it because when, you know, growing up, we lied so much to the outside world. God forbid we never lied to people inside. That was like a, a huge sin. We we're so honest to those in our, you know, communities. But to the outside world, there was no lie that was too debased to tell because it was us versus them. And we would say whatever we needed to say to get what we needed. We didn't have gainful employment, that would be working for the devil. So, you know, us kids were out on the street begging, and that's how we brought in the money or convinced people to give us things that we needed and lied about who we were, about what the money was going for, if anybody ever challenged us on it, because the cult was very well known and, and in the news often for its abuses. And so, some people were aware and they would ask us and we would lie there too. We would either deny being who they said they were or, or lie about what life inside the cult was and never admit to anything that we were accused of by those who had left and were reporting on, on the facts. And so I was tired of it. I, I was in my 20s by the time I finally was at a position where I could get out. And I made the decision that I was never going to lie again. If, if somebody was going to ask me about it. I wasn't going to try and pretend to be anything that I wasn't. And, um, you know, so somebody, you know, you knew back in the United States, oh, how long have you been here? Oh, I've been here for two months. Oh, where did you come from? Oh, I came from Europe. Oh, what were you doing in Europe? Oh, I just had got, I was there for a year before I was in Africa before that. Well, what were you doing in Africa? And it's like, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spill my guts and tell it to you straight, you know. And so from the very beginning, I was just very honest about, yeah, I was raised in a cult and, you know, it was messed up and I'm trying to get my feet on the feet out underneath me and, and start real life. And it, it sucks because I don't have any connections. I don't know anybody. I don't have 
um, an employment history or a credit history or friends from high school that I can draw on for help. And my family's not, you know, my family won't give me any help. I don't even know my extended relatives hardly. And you're just out there on your own trying to figure stuff out. And so from the beginning, it was just like, Bleh, here it all is. And so by the time I finished writing my first book and was on my way to publication and they're like, all right, give us an author bio. It was like, well, I can either make something up or I can just put it all out there. <laughs> and so I did. And that was, it's just sort of become the history of, of where I came from. And in that sense, it's, it's been beneficial because when I try and explain to people how it is that I can teach them how to do what I do, I'm coming from a level that most people can relate to in the sense that I don't have, I'm not a publishing insider. I don't have degrees from, you know, an MFA from a, a arts course or anything like that. I'm, I'm just like everybody else who's struggling to learn how to write and trying to break into the industry. So I can say, here, let me show you, let me teach you what I've learned. Let me show you how it's done in layman's terms. And here's why I have the authority to say, I don't know anymore. I didn't know any more than you do. In fact, I knew even less at the beginning. So, Yeah, and I, I would even say that a lot of people use excuses. Well, you had, and then they fill in the blank. I mean, I get this all the time. Well, you're a white, m middle-aged male, so the, of course you're a CEO of a company. And I'm like, what do you mean, of course? I mean, I, I had to work just as hard as anybody else. You know, I don't yeah. know what it would be like to be a black middle-aged male. Maybe it would have been harder. I have no idea. I only have my own experience. But I, people will use whatever you have that they see as an advantage to say to that they can't do it. To justify why they can't do it. Yeah, right. absolutely. Where you're great is that they can't do that with you. They, they no. literally, you're, you tell the story and they're like, wow, well, you win. You, you, you are well <laughs> below me. And if there's a contest of really crappy beginnings and, and making their way out of it, you win. So, which is great because you did make your way out of it and you can really, I think, speak to people and say, you know, no excuses. I mean, yeah. you don't and, give and me I, excuses. You're, you're, there, not, there you're are, worse off there, than me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I, I teach on is I get a lot of people who come to me and they say, well, I always wanted to be a writer. And I look at them and I say, no, you didn't. And of course, that's very offensive. <laughs> but I was like, look, let's be honest. If you always wanted to be a writer, you would write. And there's a difference between wanting something and wanting something. One is sort of fanciful in our imagination. It would be nice. And the other is what we actually do with our actions. As I tell my children when they say, oh, well, I want to do X, Y, Z. And I say, no, you didn't. And they look at me and they get all mad and offended as teenagers are want to do. I say, look, I'm the same way. I say I want to lose weight, but I really want to eat that chocolate more. Right. You know, and so for people who say, oh, I always wanted to. Well, yeah, they might have wanted to, but they wanted to sit and watch TV in the evening more. They wanted to do something else more. And so we lie to ourselves by, by saying, oh, I always wanted to. But no, if you really, really want something, you're going to find a way to get it. You're going to find a way to do it. It might not be the way most people do it. Um, in publishing now, there are so many options for getting published. If you can't get a publisher to take your work, there's no shame at all in publishing it yourself. But we are lying to ourselves and 
taking we're taking opportunities from ourselves if we just sit on the fence about something and we say we want to do it, but we really don't. And then people come at me and they say, oh, but I don't have the time and I don't have this and, you know, I don't have the opportunity or whatever it is. And the truth of the matter is there's always a reason why something can't be done. Always. Legitimate. Absolutely yeah. legitimate reasons why something can't be done. Life gets in the way. Money gets in the way. You know, maybe you're working three jobs and barely keeping food on the table and you just don't have anything left to be able to write. Well, there's no shame in admitting that and say, I want to write, but until I can get my family, you know, on their feet, it's just something I'm going to have to set aside for now. Yes, those things do happen. But we also know that if somebody wants something, they will do anything to get it. And we have documented proof in everyday life around us that this is true. And that proof comes in the word addict. If somebody oh, is an addict, they will do anything to get the thing that they want. They don't have resources. They don't have anything, but they'll find a way to get it. And that's not to make light of the terrible situation that addiction is. And it's not to say, well, go ahead and abandon your family and, you know, take advantage of people and some of the things that, you know, some spectrums of addiction can, can lead to. It's just to show that if you want something badly enough, you can find a way to get it. Doing it ethically takes a little more creativity. It's just that, and, and, you, and you may have to admit to yourself that as badly as I want this, I have to, for the sake of the ones I love, want something else more right now. I have to want to pay the bills more right now than take this extra time for myself because I'm only getting five hours of sleep a night as it is, and my kids are barely in clothes and shoes, and that's okay. You do what you need to do. Just don't lie to yourself about it is all. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a couple of shows that I really like, and I'm trying to remember the names of them off the the, uh, the top of my head. One's a guy, uh, it's on, um, I think on AXS or Audience or one of those shows, where he just sits down with actors behind the camera or something along those lines. And he sits down with an actor for an hour with no commercials, and he just chats with them. You know, talk to me, and, and they kind of deconstruct their careers and a project they had just done. Um and it's fascinating, and, and there's also another show, uh, Joe Buck does this show, and he does it with athletes, same type of thing. And the two things that I have, I've seen out of that, the, actually the one primary thing, is they are successful because of what you just said, is they can't help not do this thing. Actors have to act. It's a compulsion. They'll do it in a small theater. They did it in high school. They did it everywhere they could get the opportunity. And one day they woke up and it's a career. And they have varying degrees of success in that career. And they're happy to be there. But it's a compulsion. It is an addiction. They have to act. And, and these athletes, um, I, I literally just watched this last night on Alex Rodriguez, unbelievably talented. Uh, but he admits that he, when he was, he never really took his talent for granted, but he worked incredibly hard. 
uh, he put in thousands and thousands of hours. Because he was uh, tall and it was a shortstop, there was only one way to field the ball. Uh, he was explaining it. It was like a backhanded fielding of the ball. And so he found Cal Ripken's way of doing that, and then he, he, he practiced it a thousand times uh, because he knew that if he wanted to stay as a shortstop at his size, he had to be good at this one particular piece, and he had to own it. And he did. And what's interesting about that is that everyone sees when you say people say they want to be a writer and you say, no, you don't, what they're really saying is I want to be a famous writer. <laughs> or I want to yeah, have a finished book. <laughs> they don't I want to actually write. Published. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that doesn't change as you do it. Like, for example, I, I read something the other day that it was a, a tweet and it so succinctly put, put what it's like being a writer. And, and it goes back to what you said with it being a compulsion. It says it's agony writing. It's agony not writing the only acceptable state is having just written. So, it, you know, it's, writing is a very long process. Uh, well, writing books anyway. You don't, you know, when you're in other forms of business, you get, um, you get lots of quick wins. You know, ups and downs throughout the day, small challenges that are conquered, that you can celebrate as the business grows or doesn't, as the case may be. But when you're writing, you might work published, you get it all again from the audience. Oh, I liked it, but, oh, I loved it. It's just, there's never this time where you can sit back and say, I did it. I conquered the world. And by the time that book is published and it's starting to celebrate its success, you're already back into the grind again with the, this sucks and you're not doing this right. So there's no real time where everything is just rosy and you're feeling awesome about what you do. So why would you do that to yourself? It's because you're compelled to. You you don't. Have, it's agony not writing. It's agony writing. It's agony not writing. And it's just what you do, and you learn. And probably why so many uh, authors have been alcoholics. It's it's a cliche. It's it's because of the agony, and um, it's just it's what you do, and you learn that this is just it's what it is. You just learn to live with it and accept that this is the process. Yeah, and and if you're really if it's a compulsion. You're just going to do it. And it's interesting that you mentioned this this problem with there's really no ending. There's really no – I mean there may be some satisfaction of finishing the book, but it's really not finished. Someone's going to edit, and you're going to edit it again. It's really not finished until it, I guess it hits the shelves, and by that time it's kind of anticlimactic, uh, which gives me a, kind of a – an opportunity to go back to something that you said that you said you you know you've you've written the you know the informationist these Monroe books and now you're starting down a path of a new book and you just threw out kind of flippantly which I want to spend some time on so that people understand that that, that what goes into a book is you said it'll be available in 2019 is what you said yes yes yeah so we're recording this in 17 that means she knows that it's not coming out all of next year which is 2018 um, so talk a little bit about that, and that's the, this kind of speaks to this, this unsatisfactory part of writing, is it takes a really long time. It does. Well, in, in the big publishing, doing it the old-fashioned way, yes. In, in self-publishing, of course, it can be much faster than that. But there's a, there's a process um, that it goes through, and a lot of what goes into getting a book ready isn't just the writing process. Of course, they can't get a book ready if you haven't written it. But 
that, you know, they get their catalogs lined up, they get their promotional um, plans in place. And it takes, I think the quickest I've ever heard of book going through the production process is like six or seven months from submitting it to publication date because there's many steps that the book goes through. And, and when a publishing house is working on it, it's not just your book, unfortunately. Um, there's, <laughs> you could, you know, you they've could got, dream, but no. One, one could dream, right? Um, so you've got your editor, who is the book doctor. A lot of people, can, when you say editor, they think, oh, the person who's cleaning up the punctuation and you know proofreading it. No, 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 no. Um, that's a copy editor. An editor is the person who acquired it for the publishing house. They write you the checks, and they basically, um, they're the parent, they're the co-parent of that book through its life with that publishing house. And so they're working with you in sort of a collaborative way to get the story itself as good as the two of you can get it. They're looking at it from the angle of characters, plot, pacing, story holes, um, motivations, genre, tension, just all of that. And they're going to keep working with you until they feel like, all right, this is as good as we can get it. And then that gets handed off to the copy editor who's going to clean up all of the punctuation and grammar and maybe do some light fact checking. Not all copy editors are created equal, so the quality may vary. And each time you, the author, are in on this process, so you'll get that back, and you've got to accept or reject every one of those changes. And not being educated as I am, you know, I, I can handle grammar pretty well because I do that instinctively by ear. But my punctuation, oh, my God, if I get back 10 or 20 pages out of a 350 to 400-page manuscript that is not marked to high heavens, I'm like, woo, I'm getting so much better at this. Um that's interesting. So the, That's the an copy interesting editor, problem. Punctuation. <laughs> oh, I'm so bad at it. Which is frustrating because, like, if I ever look for a side gig or something that I can do, people want editors. And I could do content editing. But that's not what they're thinking of. They want somebody who makes sure that, you know, it follows the Chicago manual of style or whatever. I'm like, sorry, I'm out. Yeah. So, you know, I just it's a very I have a very weird um, skill set that doesn't typically fit into any corporate uh schematic. So the copy editor will get it and you'll get it back and then it goes to the production team and they'll enter all of those copy edits and insert half as many errors into it in the process. So you'll get it back as a first pass, which you're actually going to see it laid out like it really would be in a book, except it's on normal letter size paper. And you got to go through and make any changes that you didn't agree with. And it's a kind of a chance to sort of tweak your own language, your own words, now that you've seen it, how it's really going to look in a book, God, that goes back and they'll actually use that to print off um, galleys or arcs, which are advanced copies that will get start getting sent out to readers and reviewers to sort of build buzz for the book if they can. But then you, you it's the same issue that anybody who's trying to market a product comes up against is, you know, especially in an absolutely inundated market, is that all the people who they're sending those galleys to are getting a thousands from getting a thousand or more from other publicists and you know they're inundated. So how do you even get them to look at that to review it? It's this whole that's a whole other process. And so then you as the author, you're going to get back the second pass pages, make sure everything's gone, everything's good. They have people proofreading it also on the production side. And when they finally think they have a clean prop 
clean copy, that's going to get ready to go. And in the meantime, there's people are working on the cover design. They're working on the text for the cover copy. They're um, getting ready to take it to book fairs internationally to try and sell the rights abroad. They're um, gearing it up to get libraries interested, let libraries know they exist. There's this massive production that goes into more than just printing a book and They've got to convince bookstores to stock it because there's limited space and bookstores can only actually carry on their shelves a small fraction of how many books get published every month. So they've got to convince the bookstores to sell it, which often means paying the bookstore to have it in the store. Oh, um, it's, it's just a, it's a whole industry, which is why... Books are expensive, and the author is the one getting like the least amount of money in the whole process. <laughs> well, and this is this happens in music too. And it's funny as as you're saying this, I'm like, wow, it really sounds like a business, doesn't it? And, it and absolutely is. And it sounds like work. It doesn't sound like it's just easy. You know, I'm just going to write a book. I, I remember hearing a saying once about movies that there's three movies. There's the one that's written. There's the one that's filmed, and then there's the one that's edited. And the three of them are generally kind of the same, but they're not the same. Unless um, the person is big name who does the writing, the directing, and is the producer, in which case you get the original vision. But, but that is very, very rare. It's very, very rare. And and the book is, is very similar. So you've got the writing, and then you've got the editing, and then you've got the packaging and the marketing. And that's the other thing with movies is that, you know, have you ever seen a trailer and then gone to a movie and said, nah, that's not what the movie's about? And, uh, oh, the, the three funny scenes that are in the entire comedy were in the trailer. So yeah, Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's just really – it's a complex business. It's an old business, um, and it's changing uh, very rapidly. So talk a little bit about uh, the change. So I, one of the things – the reason I wanted to have you on is that I wanted people to understand that even though being an author may be similar to being a musician, it's, it's kind of a passion – it's a business, and Absolutely. as a result, you got to have to deal with the kind of the business stuff. So, talk a little bit about the changes in the business and and stuff that you're doing to adapt a bit. For- well, um, it, it, well, it's a, such a complex question. Yes, right. and, <laughs> so and many it, angles, and, and, and do it in something. three minutes, right? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, ebooks have been quite the disruptor mm-hmm. and have really changed the way that um, the the industry operates. The um, authors who work with publishing companies are in a unique position in that we are one of the very few creators of a product who have absolutely no concept of what our market is because there are two intermediaries between us as the business person creator and the people we're trying to sell to, first the publishers and then the distributors. So we actually have no freaking clue who we're selling our books to. So we have no way to reach out to them directly. We have no way to announce to them that a new product is being launched unless they, we, you have an author mailing list or you're, you have some avenue, some channel that you personally control. Facebook doesn't count because they're constantly changing their avenues. Twitter doesn't count because the tweets are so fleeting. You have to have some channel to stay in communication with your market to, to let them know because um, no marketing or publicity is free. Uh, when you get an email from Amazon saying, hey, such and such a book is available, nine times out of ten, the publisher paid for that. There's, there's nothing free. And if the publisher doesn't want to throw money at your book, which is 99% of the time, 
then it's basically like you're just throwing mud at a wall. A product goes out and people can't buy what they don't know exists. And if it doesn't find its audience, if it doesn't find its sales, the publishers are like, oh, okay, it didn't sell. You must suck as an author. We don't want you anymore. You didn't make us any money. Right. It's, but you it's, didn't it's promote re- me. Yeah, but that's, yeah, you don't you, promote anybody. It's ridiculous. Like no other industry that I know of functions at that level, and which is why so many authors have chosen to self-publish instead. But the problem with self-publishing is identical. How do you get those eyeballs? How do you, people cannot buy what they don't know exists. And right now, the way that eBooks have disrupted the industry is that we, it, writing uh, the whole book publishing thing is unlimited supply with very limited demand or demand that can't grow by very much because book reading takes time. And it doesn't matter if you made books 99 cents or $99, people can only read so much. But as the market has gotten flooded as a way to, one of the the ways of competing is to drive the the cost of books down. And so you have expanded the reading market slightly by creating um, less of a cost barrier to accessing books and people who are voracious readers who may have only read 10 or 15 books a year in the past because they couldn't afford more are now maybe reading 50 or 60 books a year. Those are limits. Those yeah. people are not very many, not and they don't. Them. They do not make up for the the volume that's being put out and the steep price drop. So it's this, the pie really hasn't grown very much, and the slivers of the pie are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the market is so glutted that you have a few people who are able to break through all of that, and everybody else is just sort of trying to find their way in this mess of an industry. So my solution is not the solution. Um, I, I, the, if this industry is not created for someone like me who really takes care, uh, cares about the story, cares about the words, labors over the product, so only produces maybe a book a year, sometimes a book and a half, sometimes two years per book. Um, as a, as a self-published offer, you cannot survive off of that kind of volume. You have to produce four, five, six books a year to be able to live off of sales as a self-published author, unless you are one of those unicorns that breaks through. And I'm not a James Patterson. I I am a bestseller. Yes, I have a a very loyal fan base, but I don't have the numbers of a James Patterson or a Lee Child or a Stephen King where I can just stay with the publishing house indefinitely, regardless of if a particular book bombs or not. So neither one of those paths are really good for someone like me. So I've chosen to ignore the um, the hype and the, hey, do this, now do this, now do that, and just consistently work with a fan base that loves me. Um, I email, I podcast, and I've turned to Patreon as a way for those who value what I do more than a 90, 99 cents, who want what I can produce and are willing to allow me the time to produce it to support me, to support my art, be patrons of my art. So that's sort of the direction that I've chosen to go to get past this. I still publish my books traditionally, but I know that that in and of itself might not be forever. And so my goal is to not just be one of those voices screaming into the void, but to actually build 
a recognizable product that those who love it will come and seek it out. If I succeed at it, who knows? But I know that that's the path that I have to follow. You know, what's interesting about your story arc is that it's, it's all about being a survivor. You, you found a passion. Um, we didn't even get to spend a lot of time on um, why, how you ended up even writing in the first place. But um, I'm, I'm assuming some of it had to do with the, the, the escaping your, your, you know, your dark situation. But, you know, you found a passion. You ran down the path. You had some success in it. But, the, the, you know, as a book, there's this great book called Who Moved My Cheese? The Cheese Moved. And you it had to figure moving. out. It yeah. keeps moving. It keeps moving. And it's – but – you know, you can hold up your hand and say, my life is unfair. Life is unfair. And every business is going through this right now. Every single business is being disrupted. I mean, if I told you 10 years ago, the cab industry would be in trouble, no one would have believed me. Um, That the hotel industry would be in trouble, no one would have believed me. Everything is fair game. And so do not think for one second that your industry is safe. Uh, well, people will always read. Yeah, but they may not read a piece of paper. Um, and they may not feel like they need to pay for it. Pirating is just as much of a problem in books as it is in music. Maybe less because a book takes longer to read and you can listen to, you know, 30 songs in an hour. But, you know, people just expect it for free. I put out a lot of free content and I do it because I enjoy it. But people just expect it, too. Um, out of the thousands of people who you know, are happy to take the free stuff that I do, very few of them are willing to contribute even a few dollars a month to help keep it coming, you know, through Patreon. So it's just sort of this expectation. Content right now is just expected to be free. And even if people tell you, oh, my God, I love you so much, I can't wait till your books come out, doesn't mean that they're actually love you, love you, and right. keep the lights on, you know. So you just kind of have to to roll with that. And um, the one thing that, you know, in this industry, as I'm sure as in a lot of industries, it can be really frustrating when you put your heart and soul into something and you just bust butt to do all the right things. And then someone comes along out of the blue, creates a much worse product than yours. And all of a sudden they're everywhere. And it happens. And it It can be really, really frustrating. And the one thing that is the most self-defeating thing I just don't believe in is self-pity. Self-pity is the least productive energy. Complaining also. I don't believe in complaining. If you have a problem, bring a solution. If there's an issue, find a way to fix it. And above all things, do not feel sorry for yourself because you might as well quit at that point. Right. And and life is difficult and everybody it's difficult for everybody. You just got to you got to power through and you got to figure it out and it's i wish it was easier but it's not so thanks for being on uh as always it's 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 a pleasure to chat with you and your story is fantastic and and fascinating and i hope people got a lot out of it um at the very least realize that you know being an author isn't just this ethereal thing it's part of a, a big business and and anything that you do that's creative is part of a big business and you need to figure that part out as well as be the artist that you've always wanted to be